The U.S. House debates the Secure the Border Act. Is it a replacement for Title 42? From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, today is Monday, May 8th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, we talk with U.S. Representative Dusty Johnson. We'll explore foreign policy, statutory caps for new immigrants, seeking asylum at the southern U.S. border, and more. Then, if you won the lottery today and became an instant millionaire, what would you do with the money? Rick Kaler is with us to look at the financial decisions of lottery winners and what they tell us all. Then, later in the hour, Joel Shotwell and Mark Romanowski. We have three new albums for you to check out and a launch concert around the corner. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. South Dakota may soon contribute to the nation's shrimp supply. That would begin with a small startup company focused on aquaculture. They have plans to develop multiple product lines and build a new production facility in Madison. SDPB's Evan Walton reports. The aquaculture company True Shrimp started out in the small town of Ballatin, Minnesota. It uses an old elementary school building as a shrimp laboratory. The company is preparing to scale up operations to create three distinct companies and product lines. It will produce shrimp, biomedical material, and a pet food ingredient from facilities in Minnesota and eventually South Dakota. True Shrimp has spent years on scientific innovation and engineering. Americans eat more shrimp than any other kind of seafood, and according to company leaders, shrimp offer much more than enjoyable protein for human consumption. Michael Zabel is the president and CEO of the company. After working with the Schwann's company for more than 22 years and helping to develop the Red Baron pizza, he joined True Shrimp. The operation plans to develop a new South Dakota production facility. A separate company, True Protein, will produce a pet food ingredient, but it won't be the only product made at the Madison plant. Zabel says a third company, True Kytosin, will create a substance used in biomedical, pharmaceutical, and dermatology products. Madison Bay Harbor is what we call it, and there we will build a facility modeled exactly on what is here in Ballatin. That facility will be capable of producing about 1.8 million pounds of shrimp, over 4,700 kilograms of chitosan, and about 600,000 pounds of pet food ingredients. Zabel says they hope to break ground on the new South Dakota plant in 2024. When complete, it will offer a minimum of 60 new jobs. Zabel says one of their product lines, True Protein, will make an animal food ingredient from their commercial shrimp. For example, we remove the heads when we process the shrimp. We combine those heads with shrimp that have been damaged uh, through the process in, in production and also uh, processing, as well as shrimp that are too small for the consumer market. Uh, and we create an emulsion uh, of that high-protein, low-fat pet food ingredient that has a one-word ingredient statement, shrimp. All shrimp and shellfish have natural levels of chitin, which can be refined into a molecule called chitosan. In the past, it's been used as medicine, and the company plans to further the medical application of the molecule. Because of the way we grow the shrimp under almost total controlled conditions, almost laboratory conditions, our chitosan can be used for medical applications, uh, both pharmaceutical and medical device. In fact, chitosan may ultimately bring in the company's largest revenues. Zabel projects that this could be as much as 60%. 
The parent company, True Shrimp, has been working with the state for years to plan and develop the new plant. We did receive uh, incentives from the state of South Dakota. Uh, it's in the form of a convertible note that when we break ground and start building Madison, money invested by the state of South Dakota will become stock in the True Shrimp Company. The Lake Area Regional Development Corporation, uh, there we have an option on, their on the land in their industrial park. So yes, the state of South Dakota has been very supportive of us. Appreciate it very much. Local business leaders say True Shrimp will be an important addition. Brooke Rolog is the executive director of the Lake Area Improvement Corporation. We're excited. So in the Lakeview Industrial Park, we own land, and we've engaged in the land option with True Shrimp. Madison Bay Harbor is the official name of the project. Company CEO Michael Zabel says that medical applications for Kytosin can make a difference in trauma situations. In fact, they are currently working on a product that uses chitosin and fibers, like bandages, that can help stop bleeding and wounds. Zabel says they are now testing the material with medical staff treating soldiers on the front lines of the war in Ukraine. For South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Evan Walton. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Title 42 is an immigration policy put in place during the COVID-19 pandemic. It was a way to expel asylum seekers out of the U.S. quickly for public health purposes. While the pandemic is no longer considered a public health emergency, so Title 42 will end this week on May 11th. The U.S. House is proposing new policy as part of what they call the Secure the Border Act, but early reports indicate that President Biden would veto that legislation. U.S. Congressman Dusty Johnson from South Dakota is with me on the line now. Congressman Johnson, welcome. Thanks for being here. You bet. Thanks for having me. This is a, a problem people have been talking about immigration reform since, well, I remember George W. Bush and John McCain and the failed efforts to enact some of the things that uh, they wanted done. Uh, President Obama, everyone since, we're dealing with the consequences of not being able to solve this complicated problem. Where do you want to begin today? Well, at the conceptual level, it's not that complicated, or at least it shouldn't be. It is way too hard to get here legally, and it is way too easy to get here illegally. I mean, we know that uh, we want our country to be a magnet for the best and the brightest and the hardest working people in the globe. If you love freedom, uh, if you love America, if you want to work hard, you sound like a pretty good American to me. But we got to have you follow the rules. And uh, obviously, anybody who's watching the footage of the lineups happening at the southern border this weekend, I think, know that the system we've got right now is not working. So you said, mentioned way to getting getting here legally is way too hard, and some people would argue that is why people are doing high risk things. And the harder that <laughs> that you make it, the riskier the journey will become. How can we make it um, more reasonable for people who are seeking asylum to be processed, to find work, to get education for their kids, to be treated? with human dignity. We're, let's begin there. And we do need to make the whole process smoother. I'm certainly interested in that. But but I do want to reject the idea that because the legal pro, uh, process is cumbersome, that that uh, forgives uh, or should accept breaking the rules. And, and we know that the overwhelming majority of the people trying to cross the southern border are not legitimate refugees. 
They do not have uh, a, a qualified, legitimate fear claim. They're not. Uh, their their asylum claims are not ultimately going to be accepted. Uh, they are seeking a better economic life in America, and that is uh, a worthy goal. But there's a legal process for that that doesn't include paying the drug cartels $10,000 to carry you a couple thousand miles so that you can cross illegally. And, and the problem is now we've had such a, a, a huge amount of traffic in the last few years that the, the New York ICE office is booked out until 2032 in their adjudicatory processes to, to ascertain whether or not these asylum claims are legitimate. Now, we know that 95 percent of them are not. So imagine the humanitarian crisis we've created in 2032 when a family is told, well, you can't be here legally. you got to go back. Nine years from now, we're going to send them back. This is nonsense. And, and I think President Biden understands that there's been a lot of mismanagement at the southern border. A lot of Democrats in the House and the Senate are starting to tell him that as well. We need to adjudicate these claims at the border far more quickly. The president has been resistant to doing that, and it's a mistake. Do we need more asylum officers from the Department of Homeland Security? Do we need more Justice Department immigration judges? We do need more personnel down there, and that is something that the Republican plan would do. We would also invest in more technology. We know also, and this used to be a strong bipartisan agreement, I mean, there are uh, places along the border where uh, a, a physical wall, a structure, would help. Uh, Barack Obama uh, constructed 200 miles of new wall at the border during his presidency. This used to be something upon which we could agree. But, uh, and, that, and the Republican bill would also say, Mr. President, we appropriated dollars. You refused to spend them. Don't put us into a constitutional crisis here. Finish the wall that Congress, in a bipartisan way, asked you to build. I think our bill is a really good approach toward dealing with this crisis. How are we pursuing relationships with other countries, for example, to help share responsibility for asylum seekers? Great question. It was something that the Trump administration did a really good job of. You know, I understand. Uh, I, I get it. President Trump was not known uh, for his multilateralism, for his uh, finesse in international affairs. So when he did have successes, I think people have a tendency to overlook them. But uh, the deals that he cut with Mexico and with the Northern Triangle countries really did help. The Remain in Mexico policy uh, stopped this, these illegal crossings by 85 percent. He sent a clear message to folks, do not come here. Uh, we know that there will be a humanitarian toll if you come here. It's not good for you. It's not good for your families. It's not good for our country. I, Joe Biden has really weakened that message, and I think that's why we're in the spot that we're in right now. So are you rejecting the idea, I want to go back to something you said before, that these people are living um, under the thumbs of cartels, that they're fleeing violence, that they're taking these risks, um, these extraordinary risks, because of their home conditions? You think they're just coming to get a higher-paying job? That seems... No, well, uh, no, uh, clearly there is terrible violence uh, in their home countries, but that's not asylum. You're not a refugee if street crime, if organized crime is pronounced in your home. You know, we've got a, a global and international system for asylum seekers, and it really is about you being at risk 
of being killed or injured because of your gender, your ethnicity, your religion. I mean, that's why we set this system up. If it's just that your hometown is dangerous, that is tragic. And I want to get a pathway for you to come to America. But refugee status is not that legal pathway. So then it's increasing statutory caps for legal immigration. Uh, it, a part of what we should do is just clear the backlog of where we're at. Uh, you know, I talked about the huge asylum backlogs to 2032 in New York, but the legal uh, immigration numbers are backed up for years as well. It should not take a family 50 or $100,000 and seven or nine years to get through the legal process in this country. If we just did a better job of uh, processing those claims, we could really, really shorten the lines. Do we need more immigrants? Uh, you know, our country is doing, has done for my entire lifetime, what no other country in the world has done, and that is we've allowed a million people to become new Americans a year, every year, year in and year out. No other country does that. And so I don't know that that's the wrong number, but I do know that the process itself uh, is not working. And this, uh, listen, it seems like we should be able to find a strong bipartisan agreement that it shouldn't take seven years, uh, you know, to follow all the paperwork to become an American. Right. What about foreign policy? What are we doing to work with countries to um, reduce the push from the south toward the north? Uh, you know, the Mexican drug cartels made $13 billion last year, not hauling drugs, uh, but hauling human beings. And there have been times when the Mexican government has been very or has been more effective in pushing back on the drug cartels. Uh, They're not particularly strong right now. And I think we need a stronger agreement with Mexico. Maybe we need to, you know, provide some American resources to be able to push back on the cartels. And, of course, the cartels also traffic in drugs. And we know that 95 percent of the fentanyl uh, and methamphetamine that come into this country come across the southern border Um, Just um, in in the last couple of years, we have seized uh, enough fentanyl to kill 3 billion people. Uh, And we know that when we have our border agents uh, busy with 80 percent of their time filling out paperwork, they are not at the ports of entry um, doing the kinds of drug interdiction efforts we need them to do if we're going to keep more Americans alive. So we have a foreign policy challenge. We have high demand in America for fentanyl. We have high demand for cheap labor. And we have maybe an eight to 10 year delay in legal processing. How does that not all add up to <laughs> to people taking extraordinary steps to cross the border? That's I'm still going back to the beginning. Um, and maybe you and I are just going to disagree on this point. But when when the system is is working like that, wouldn't human beings who are fleeing deplorable conditions try to do extraordinary things to make a better life for their family? Uh, But if you're going to be, I mean, one of the defining characteristics of the American experience is an adherence to the rule of law. It is when you talk to people who come to America, they will remark uh, about how much stronger our commitment to that is than to where they came from. And it's one of the reasons that we have managed to be, you know, such a shining light for the world. And when you tell people, you know, if the laws are too cumbersome, just ignore them. I think that undermines the rule of law to a dangerous extent. I mean, let's keep the pressure on Congress, keep the pressure on me to do our jobs. Let's not uh, just accept rule breaking. Die or cross? 
that that's sorry, what's the, that, Lori? That's the choice people are making: die here, or cross. And when that's the law that you're breaking, that doesn't necessarily feel like, you know, you're murdering someone or you're. I I I'm wondering about the equivalency here. I think I mean, it's important. Well, no, yeah. but I think it's a false dichotomy. I mean, it's not as though you know everyone who stays in Guatemala dies. I mean, it is a dangerous environment. But, Lori, there are, I mean, there are, two hundred countries in the world uh, that that have uh, towns, that have cities, that have regions that are dangerous to live in. We just, I mean, we have to take your proposition to its logical point, and that is in America with no caps on immigration that will literally allow the billions of people living in dangerous poverty or dangerous uh, crime conditions to be able to come here. That, I mean, you can't have an immigration policy that has no limits, that has no rules. And so by all means, let's do what we can to save people's lives. But I think we can do that while working within the existing international system. Right. That's, I guess, why I was asking that question about certainly America cannot solve this problem on their own. But it's a globalization problem. People are going to be displaced and move. So let's go back to what you said about holding people like you accountable for doing your job. What's next for you in Congress? This is a difficult dynamic to address. I think we have a chance to make progress in the intermediate term. There are, I think, some brave and thoughtful voices on the other side of the aisle that are pushing back on the White House. People like Senator Mark Kelly from Arizona, people like uh, Congressman Henry Cuellar from Texas, frankly, a large number of the border state Democrats are beginning to tell the White House, uh, you know, Senator Sinema would be another example, that, that the, the administration's policy has been untenable and that first we need to secure and stabilize the border. And then secondly, we need to talk about how to clean up and improve the legal immigration system. And I think sequentially we do need to do it that way. And there is growing bipartisan agreement on that. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Imagine this. You compare the numbers on your lottery ticket to the winning digits and find a perfect match. You're all set for a million-dollar windfall. What would you plan to do with that money? And if we fast forward a year or two, what would you have actually done? Rick Kaler is here to break down your expectations for and the realities of winning the lottery. Rick is president and founder of the Kaler Financial Group. He's an influential financial advisor and our financial therapist for the day. He joins me from SDPB's Black Hills Surgical Hospital Studio in Rapid City. What, Rick, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Lori. Good to be here. This is the fantasy There's of sudden money or some kind of inheritance windfall or lottery win. Uh, we love to engage in those little harmless fantasies, don't we? In fact, I was thinking this morning of a song. I don't know how long uh, old it is. It was uh, recorded by Bare Naked Ladies. Sure. It's called If I Had a Million Dollars. And I'll give you a clue. Nothing that we're going to talk about was really on that list that they <laughs> sang about. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, let's get behind the the emotions or psychology or, or cognitive thinking behind having a fantasy like that, because you're fantasizing about uh, a pro a big problem that you have being solved, or your ability to have influence 
in your you know your family, your community, maybe you want to give to charity or or some kind of bucket list items. What's going on when we spend time thinking about what if we got a windfall? Yeah, and it can be a, a combination of um, fantasizing. Oftentimes, it's oh, I would love to have this or that or something that may make uh, uh, life easier or experiences or things. There's also a lot of shoulds and oughts that go on in our mind Mm -hmm. around what should I do, what ought I do with uh, a million dollars. And I think that's what really uh, got my attention with this particular survey um, that I read uh, last month about what would you do with a million dollars? What did people say? How did they respond to the survey? Well, it kind of was shocking to me because we've talked about <clears throat> before about confirmation bias, and that's how we look for uh, uh, bits and pieces of what support or affirm what we already believe. And what I believe about most people that uh, have sudden wealth is that they blow it. <laughs> well, <laughs> this particular research said that 50% of the people that responded said they would invest it or no, I'm sorry, that they would uh, buy a house. Mm-hmm. 17% said they would invest it. And 13% said they'd pay off debts. And I was kind of taken back at that. That's 80% of the people said if they had a million dollars, they would do something that certainly seemed to be very financially wise. Sure. And yet. So kind of... <laughs> <laughs> So, so uh, as and, a, and a, as a good they, uh, yes, biased going. human being, I started looking yeah. for the opposite yeah. <laughs> evidence to, yeah. to confirm my bias. Yeah, and what did Which you find? Which was interesting. Yeah. I found a study uh, by a, a professor out of Ohio State uh, University. And he said that the average lottery winner only managed to come out of the event with 16 cents on every dollar. Hmm. And there's other studies that show 43% blow it within five years. There's a lot of data out there that would suggest what happens is not uh, what people intend to happen. So what's blowing it versus spending it or using it? What did, what, how yeah, are you well, defining the word, they blew it? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Lord. <laughs> this is a, a professional term, blowing it. Um, blowing it would be um, spending it in such a way that it only benefits you very, very short term. That when we, when we come upon a windfall, we have a choice to be very intentional, very awake, very conscious with what we do with that money that can either could improve our standard of living or improve our standard of living uh, and support our quest for meaning for many years to come. So when I use the word blowing it, it would be spending it with a a very, very short-term goal Mm -hmm. or maybe in such a way that actually um, was very unfortunate. For example... 50% 50% of, the, of people want to buy a house or real estate. Well, that seems on the surface to be a pretty good thing to do with money because in the long run, typically, real estate serves a person pretty well. Uh, having been in the real estate uh, industry for 30, 40 years before I, I got into financial advising, 
I, I witnessed this. And there's a big gap between what I should or what I ought to do with the money and what I do. And the gap when it comes to real estate is the uh, uh, acumen to make a really thoughtful, wise purchase. Hmm. So I have seen so many people go bankrupt that bought real estate. I'm thinking of somebody right now that inherited a large amount of wealth uh, that bought real estate with it and was bankrupt in five to 10 years. Uh, And and we're talking millions of dollars. Hmm. So there's an odd, yeah, I should go invest this. I should buy real estate. I should do something smart with this. But the execution of doing something smart is the gap between that and reality. Is the, does this happen to people who already are moneyed versus, I mean, I think there's an assumption that if you play the lottery, maybe you don't have, you know, you're, you're, you're gambling anyway, but that's not necessarily the case. There are plenty of people who are in financially, you know, sound positions that play it for entertainment. Do they do better if you have good habits in place? Any research on that? Yeah, that, that's a really good point because so many people that come into sudden wealth, and I would in, include an inheritance in that, mm-hmm. a uh, sign-on bonus, anything when money shows up suddenly. If a person doesn't have a foundation, um, uh, some, some basic um, uh, emotional intelligence and financial intelligence, uh, it's probably going to be problematic. So if you took somebody that uh, successfully runs their own business or has provided for their own retirement and they receive a windfall, there is, of course, a higher probability that they may do things that will uh, help that money further support their life and their, their desires than somebody that has never been exposed to this. And money scripts are running rampant. You know, one a really good one is rich people are pretentious or people that have money have come across the money illegally. Mm-hmm. Um, I once talked to an IRS agent that had a money script that every person that does well is doing something illegal. <laughs> Occ- <laughs> occupational hazard. <laughs> oh. So if I have that belief, if I have that money script and I come into money, now there's all sorts of, of what's called cognitive dissonance, a disconnect happening inside of me because now I am what I despise. Mm. And that can just set a person up for, uh, for failure financially. How often do people pay down debt and then go back into debt? How common is that? It's very common. Yeah. And that's why paying down debt seems, oh, well, that would be a great thing to do. And I've seen people struggle. I, I remember somebody I worked with that incurred 30000 of uh, credit card debt, and this was probably 15 years ago, would struggle, struggle, struggle to pay it off, get it paid off. And within a month or so, it's back. Wow. Now, why? And what I suggest is what's familiar for that person is struggling to pay off the debt. And when they're in a position that there's no struggle, just the way that we're wired, something's wrong. And we, we tend to go back to what's familiar. 
whether you want to call that self-sabotaging or whatever it is, I could never figure out what that meant. But I do understand going back to what's familiar, and that's why when people do uh, uh, receive an inheritance, win a lottery, all of a sudden they're thrust into a stratosphere that they're not familiar with, that there's these huge internal forces that are trying to pull us back to what's familiar and not just internal, external forces, people that are wanting us to get back to who we were. Mm -hmm. And usually that means uh, losing whatever that inheritance was. Yeah, that's familiar energy. Stay. That it goes back to what you said, what we think about people with money. Well, if you came from a family where people of wealth were not trusted uh, or were disparaged, then being in that family and being the person with the money becomes untenable in some ways. Yeah, exactly. It, it just kind of blows the whole uh, <clears throat> perspective. I, I th I've told this story before. I once had an employee that worked for me that won the lottery and won 300000 And uh, about a year later, she told me she wished she had never seen the money because mm. it produced more heartache for her than it was ever worth. And we're not talking about, quote, a lot of money, but it was a lot of money to her. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you know she says and and she paid a third of it in taxes right. and she was like i'm not rich i only make forty thousand a year why do i have to pay all these taxes yeah. so it it can be quite a an event and oftentimes not a very happy event uh when viewed a year two three years down the road it can be an opportunity to seek help uh, immediately from the right people, not from, you know, your uncle who just showed up, <laughs> no. uh, to, to really say there is some sudden wealth. What am I going to do with it? And I'm going to use this as an opportunity to get <laughs> to come to Jesus moment. I'm going to get right with money and figure out what's happening. It's a great opportunity for some deep exploration. But you got to be patient. It it totally is, and very few people take that opportunity. I was talking to somebody last week, and I asked him, what would you do with a million dollars? Immediately, she says, well, a third of it's going to go to taxes, and I was kind of blown away by that knowledge. And she says, I would take the other third of it and invest it. And I'm just like, wow, this is the survey. And I said, how would you invest it? She says, I would give it to my friend who is a day trader. Oh. <laughs> well... There's a recipe for, for disaster, right. and that is so common. And the funny thing is, she's a friend of mine. She didn't say I'd give it to Rick. <laughs> <laughs> no, be very boring with it. Yes. <laughs> but I'd give yeah. it to this this day trader, and that is so common. She also said the second thing she'd do is pay off debts. The third thing she'd do is fix up her house with a bunch of stuff that wouldn't improve the value of the house. And the last thing she'd do is whatever's left over, she'd put in a CD, which was probably the smartest thing that she, she mentioned. <laughs> All right. Well, next time we talk, let's talk about the emotions behind the taxes thing, too, because that's been coming up on the show where people are like, Oh, I'd have to give it to taxes. And then somebody else came on the radio a couple of weeks ago and was like, yeah, I, I, taxes are a good thing. So let's unpack how we feel about ta paying taxes and this idea of 
you know, tax relief and how that sort of frames this whole concept of the role of taxes in American society. I just would love That'll to have that, fun. that conversation with you. Rick Kaler, financial. That means somebody's got to remember this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or we'll come up with something better. That's good, too. <laughs> he has written several books on financial therapy, one of the leaders of this movement and a frequent guest on our show. Rick Kaler, thank you so much. Thank you, Lori. Let's take a moment for South Dakota history. On this day in 2015, President Barack Obama gave the commencement address at Lake Area Technical College in Watertown. The visit made Obama the fourth president to visit all 50 states. The others were Richard Nixon, George H.W. Bush, and Bill Clinton. The president began his address by saying, quote, I am thrilled to be here. I have now been to all 50 states as president, and I was saving the best for last. To the other 49, I hope you take no offense. He also said this, why would I come to a two-year college in the fifth biggest city in South Dakota? Well, the reason is because I believe there are few institutions that are more important to America's economic future than community colleges. And there are few community colleges that are as important as Lake Area Tech. The graduation rate at Lake Area is more than three times the national average, and Lake Area is one of only two community colleges in the country that made the top 10 every year for the Aspen Prize the top award for community colleges. In his closing, Obama cited former Vice President Hubert Humphrey, born nearby in Wallace, South Dakota. He talked about how education made Humphrey's American story possible. Obama said the road to freedom here and everywhere on earth begins in the classroom. So, class of 2015, you have earned the chance to walk the road to freedom and to make of your lives what you will to write the next chapter in our American story. With a stay of just over two hours, President Obama concluded his visit to the state with Air Force One lifting off from Watertown on this day in 2015. Production assistance for this day in South Dakota history comes from Brad Tennant, professor of history at Presentation College. We'll take a break. When we come back, Joel Shotwell and Mark Romanowski will look at new music, an upcoming concert, and the insertion of spoken word into Joel Shotwell's work. You're on listener-supported SDPB Radio.
yourself a good pair of headphones. We've got three new albums coming soon from some Sioux Falls artists. Mark Romanowski and Joel Shotwell have each crafted a solo album and worked on a collaborative album together. They criss, they cross, they join each other. There are many other musicians and poets who participate as well. Each album has its own unique style. And Joel and Mark are with me in the Kirby Family Studio ahead of a Saturday night concert in Sioux Falls. Joel Shotwell, welcome back to the program. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having us. Mark Romanowski, nice to meet you. Thank you. Which feels like an oversight on my part (laughs) in epic fashion. (laughs) It's hard to meet me because I'm usually just watching YouTube at home and I'm rarely out (laughs) unless I'm going to watch one of Joel's gigs, you know. (laughs) Nice to meet you musically, but I should have known you before. You're one of those musicians who's, uh, you know, so integrated into the community. Every once in a while that happens to me. Sure. And I love it when it happens because all of a sudden a whole new door opens. I think I started gigging in Sioux Falls in 87, I think 87 or 88, yeah. Yeah. With Chuck Luden, who's one of the poets on um, Joel's album. Yeah. I think my first gig was opening for Chuck's old band. (laughs) All right, so what you heard there was uh, the title track, Everything a Thousand Million Times, from Joel Shotwell's album. So we're going to talk about that first. Joel, first of all, I mean, the, the cover... The the mastering, this is a labor of love for you. You've done so much and worked with so many people. Tell us a little bit about how you introduce people to this work. Yeah, it's all friends of mine um, that I just asked if they, it's every song I would hear someone, you know, on everything a thousand million times, Jeff Ball's playing the, the Rhodes, and I, I just heard him playing, and I and fortunately I got great relationships and great friends that when I asked them, they said, absolutely, let's, Send me the track and we'll record it. So yeah, this feels to me like a breakthrough for you to something that maybe you haven't done before. How did you give yourself the freedom as an artist to say, "I don't know what's happening next, but I'm going to go down this path." Sure. Uh, what the freedom came out of necessity, partly because it started during COVID, so I couldn't play with my typical quintet or the guys I usually play with the JAS quintet. Um, so, and I needed to do something writing-wise, creatively. Usually, every spring, something will start to bubble up out of me that'll turn into something or not. But, uh, um, so it was kind of that sort of necessity. And then also just kind of trying to grow and mature as an artist and accepting the fact that not everything has to be the way I listen to it. It can be the way that it just happens to come out of me. So this was more of that. It yeah. came out of the ether, really, like without an idea of like, oh, I'm going to do a tune kind of similar to this in a blues form, or I'm going to do, uh, you know, maybe a programmatic thing that leads a story. It was it's purely just coming from nothing. Yeah. So. And you, you mentioned in your uh, gratitude, you know, for your family, the foundational and nurturing is important for artists, too. Somebody yeah. believes in you. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. You have to... Someone has to believe in you, especially, you know, when you're dealing with this kind of art that isn't going to be probably attractive to everyone. You know, it's not the type of the style of music that I think is appealing to everyone, maybe, unless they are open minded. So you're constantly kind of fighting with the idea of like, well, is it even valuable or, you know, oh, yeah, it is. (laughs) It's yeah, like I said, good pair of headphones and uh, some time. We're going to play a little cut. Mark mentioned uh, Charles Luden, the poet. Here's a little bit from Escape and Immediate. 
windows I look out of are dark. Are dark. and immediate from Joel Shotwell's new album, The Voice You Heard, Charles Luden, poet's been on this show before, kind of an iconic figure in South Dakota mm-hmm. for his poetry for many years, and something completely different. Mm-hmm. Spoken word maybe three times on this album. What drew you to that, to adding those, that kind of a vocal experience, an audio experience for people? Uh, you know, I love uh, working with Charles and, and other people poets. Xavier Pastrano's on there too, and he's amazing. Um, Fantastic. Yeah. One time years ago, me and Charles uh, did, we've done this a few times, but like where we would kind of just improvise behind him doing poetry, and I thought it was amazing, and I I love his books, um, and I just, it's something that I'm not a writer, uh, and but I'm really compelled when something, uh, when I read something and it does that to me. I'm like, how can words do that? And he's one of those guys, so yeah. I love hip-hop music too, um, so it's like, well, they're, they're doing poetry. These are my poetry friends. Let's put music with it. It seems to work, you know. Mark called him Chuck. Chuck. <laughs> I just call him sir. <laughs> Let's listen to a little bit from the Rose Quarter, uh, History of the Middle Ages. This is Mark Romanowski's, at, at the title cut here, History of the Middle Ages. Sorry you can't reach me Um, Mark explained this uh, this <laughs> offering to people. What do you want them to sort of come to the listening experience prepared uh, to do? Uh, most of the most of the songs on this album are, for the first time for me, pretty autobiographical. I used to just make up stories in as far away from me as I can get, you know, mm-hmm. and and then make it rhyme, you know, and and I thought. 
it might be nice to do an album with things I think about aging. Uh, it's a big part of it. I mean, hence the name History of the Middle Ages. Right. You know, and and uh, just uh, kind of a, a scrambling of my influences, like the music I've always loved that I've never really had a chance to make. I decided... I know this guy who's incredibly great at saxophone and Andrew Reinhardt, who's a monster bass player and my old buddy Lance Byer on drums. Um, why don't I just give myself permission to do a different kind of music that I've never done and I didn't think I could, you know? And, yeah. and, uh, and I'm happy with the results. It was kind of a gamble for me to, to sing like that. I kind of grew up as a punk, you know? <laughs> and I've had, you know, I've played in like, Johnny Thunder's tribute bands and replacements tribute bands, you know, and yeah. you know, uh, so this is a bit of a departure for me, but I'm getting more and more comfortable in whatever that genre is. It's kind yeah. of a soul pop, uh, uh, you know. Love having the horns. I love percussion, bongos, uh, and I'm. We're gonna start the next album next month. Like we're just yeah. gonna keep going, you know. And <laughs> another breakthrough in some ways that is for based me, on this foundation yeah. of giving yourself permission to be the artist that you want to be. Yep, yep. And, it, and it yet you're both such successful artists already, <laughs> and then there's this other leveling up, which it, I it, find it, fascinating. It, it took a long time for me to finally just... How come? I don't know why. I mean, I was kind of comfortable. Just I've been playing with years with my good buddy Rich Show, um, yeah. literally since, I think, 1991. And I'm kind of the rhythm guitar player, a little lead guitar. Um, I started writing songs in, the ba in a band out in Seattle, but even that was like, I'd write half the music and my partner would write the other half and then I'd just add lyrics to his. And we had similar tastes, but this is kind of the first thing that it's just all me, you know? In fact, the album was all done by me and I was just gonna put it out as kind of a lo-fi home recording. And then without the horns, I didn't have sax yet, but uh, I did all the drums and bass and blah. And I just thought, I don't know, maybe these should be treated a little better. you know. And get somebody like Lance, who's infinitely better at drums than me, and Andrew, same with bass, and then getting to meet Joel through a couple of different projects and asking him, like, would you be willing to, to really go after this with me and, like, layer it up and make big horn sections? And, and when he was willing to do that, and we just started kind of re-demoing the songs out at his house with pretty elaborate horn stuff, it just opened the whole thing up for me, you know, like, this is going to be fun, you know, and it, and it was. How know, do like, you share ideas with each other? What is that communication like? Is it uh, like you're using words to communicate or you're just playing things back and forth? Take me in the room, Joel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of like with some groups, you, you write everything out and then they play it exactly how you write it. But with us, we just play yeah. or sing each I other can't, parts. I can't yeah. write sheet music, so I just pick up a guitar, you know, and say, this part goes, you know, B, C, C, D, B, and, he, you know, he can put that through his horn and just make it happen, you know, mm -hmm. and then we'll figure out the harmony note, and we'll just, yep. before you're done, we have a, you know, a nice big sax section, and Some experimenting. I, I, was, I was happy that these guys were willing to do that and kind of take, quote, direction, I guess, and let me have ideas, you know, and there is a third album, which I'm not even going to talk about yet because I want you to come <laughs> back because it is interesting and fascinating, and I just feel like your work deserves a full hour, and so maybe we'll just keep cool. having more conversations until... It, but there is a show coming up at the Washington Pavilion. Uh, you're going to perform Saturday, 
different uh, pieces from all three of these albums. Who's going to be in the room, Joel, for people? Oh, there's like 20, I think. 20, okay, we, 22. Well, give or take. We're yeah. going gonna to close the show with yeah. Andromeda Lane, so yeah. we don't have time to list all 20 people. <laughs> um, but The Rose the Quarter, stars. History of the Middle Ages, Joel Shotwell's Everything a Thousand Million Times. Uh, pick those up with your headphones. Enjoy. Um, thank you for listening. Here is Andromeda Lane. Just your breath and the chance to know You shudder 